Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Who are we kidding? It's impossible. It's true. You can't do the switch. Nobody can do the switch. It was a stupid idea to begin with. Let's face it. I'm stuck with the non-laugher, and that's that. We'll come up with something. Yeah, sure we will. All right. See you tomorrow. Welcome to RomareCast, a podcast about Eric Romare, his films, his working methods, and anything else that we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. I'm Liam Billingham. And I'm Sean Sandavaratna, and today's conversation will be centered around boyfriends and girlfriends, or my girlfriend's boyfriend, or L'Ami de Mon Ami from 1987. I thought the title of this movie was Girlfriends and Boyfriends. So when I was trying to find it in the book, in my Eric Romare biography, I was like, where is it? And then I went, wait, is it called Girlfriends and Boyfriends? I couldn't remember. So the title is is something to talk about, oh, for sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Uh, it seems to be a tradition now that when we record, uh, I wear a hat and Sean has a drink. It's later in the day for Sean in New York than it is... Uh, for me in LA, and so he's having a civilized beverage, which is a little early for me. It's getting close, especially because I'm on vacation. Sean, what are you drinking? I this, am drinking uh, fine. Um, I'm drinking an absinthe, and uh, I've decided I've made a conscious decision that absinthe is going to be my beverage of choice. So this is like a new a new decision in my life. Like all the time? Yeah, like in the way that my father... Like instead of coffee? Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of coffee before going to work, I'm going to have some absinthe in the morning. No, instead of like scotch in the evening, like the way my dad would come home and drink scotch after a day of work, I want absinthe to be my thing. It's like part oh. of... Yeah. It's part of my like middle age character development. I'm still kind of workshopping this bit. Mine is that's good for mine's martinis, but I don't I don't usually have a martini on a Wednesday. That's that's a strong that would be a strong way to go into a Wednesday. Sometimes, um, well, this is, and 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 I always wear a hat, and today I'm wearing a hat. Let me get let's get a screen grab oh, yeah. of this if we can. I'm wearing my screen. I'm wearing my screen slate hat today. One of the great things for folks that might not be aware of screen slate but live in New York City or are planning to visit New York City is that it's a resource to learn about 
all the art house cult movie, interesting movie screenings that are happening at every single movie theater in New York City. So definitely check out Screen Slate um, as a resource for figuring out what is playing in theaters in New York. Absolutely. It is wonderful. Your description of it was so much uh, was so much uh, stronger than mine. I'm, I'm impressed. Uh, should we start with our, since this is a conversation of Eric Romare, should we start with our very special segment, Romare in the Air? Should we start there? Yeah, let's start with Romare in the Air. This is, this is where we talk about real-life connections we've made to Eric Romare and those uh, to the podcast. Special thanks to uh, friend, our friend of, friend of the pod, Austin Ratchless, for giving us this name idea. Sean, let, talk a little bit about your Romare in the air for this week. So my Romare in the air uh, for this week was getting the chance to see this movie with two people, uh, two actors that I really closely collaborate with, uh, Sathya Sridharan and Anastasia Olowin. Uh, we've made a number of short films together and we are making a feature together. And this was an opportunity to share a Romare film, which neither of them, I think, maybe had seen. I think Anastasia might have seen Green Ray before, but it was a chance to share this movie that... I, is really like special to me and this director that's really special to me with creative collaborators and also just talk about what this movie experience was like for them. So I don't know, it was like a very cool thing in terms of like the way we make work and the kind of work that we make for us to watch this movie together. So it felt totally. like, yeah, like this like kind of a, I don't know, just like a, like a creative shared experience. Some of my favorite stories are about when like, Paul Thomas Anderson showed the cast of Magnolia, um, or like, no, better, showed the cast of There'll Be Blood, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre before they started shooting. Like, I love those kinds of like, what movies did you watch before you, or like Christopher Nolan showing the crew uh, of Blade uh, of Batman Begins Blade Runner before they shot it, or whatever the case might be. These like fun stories about what inspires artists. Yeah, for sure. And just like anything that helps establish a kind of tone. Totally. Yeah. Um, mine is not, uh, well, mine is really cool. And uh, I haven't revealed this to you yet, but our, our friend Mike Carroll from our days when we yeah. worked together uh, uh, has been texting me about the show. And he, he, he seems to think we're soliciting new names for the podcast. And I'm not <laughs> sure why. So he made us a logo that I would like to share in the chat. I'm going to share, I'm going to share in the Slack chat. And I want you to just to take a look at it. And I want to get your reaction <laughs> to it. All right, opening it. It's in the chat. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Sean, please describe okay. what you see. Um, what I'm seeing over here is this image of Eric Romare that's like... It's the Wikipedia picture. It's of the him, Wikipedia, which is a, like a really like awful picture of him as well. Um, looks like it's at some kind of lecture. There's an image of a third eye that's been uh, superimposed onto his forehead. Um, his head is inside of a circular logo um, outline, and it says the Eric Romare experience with um, cool lightning bolts. And, and of it's course, pretty, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> so that could be our new logo if we decide to change the name of the podcast, the Eric Romare experience. And of course, Mike, Michael is, is referencing a podcast that we will not name on this show. Or I don't think you know which podcast it is, which makes this even better. <laughs> Uh, anyway, this is go go watch news radio to figure it out. All right, Sean, let's talk about boyfriends and girlfriends, girlfriends and boyfriends, my boyfriend's girlfriend, and the the other. What's the l'ami de mon ami? Yeah, is the French mm -hmm. title the loves of my love? I believe or the is friend, the friend of my friend. Oh, the friend of my. She's my French is real bad. Um, 
Let's uh, let's. What's this movie about? Let's get into it. Yeah, want to read Metrograph's take for us? So, um, from the Metrograph website and journal, um, Romare uses the amorous misadventures of two girlfriends in the Paris suburbs to test the old proverb, "Les amis de mes amis saint mes amis." The friends of my friends are my friends. In the final episode of his comedies and proverbs series, taking an identifiable stab at a yuppieish set. Romare's witty Shakespearean rondelet involves the buttoned-up Blanche, Emmanuel Chalet in a superb debut, and the free-spirited Leah, Sophie Renoir, and their current amours. The pair are tempted by each other's love interests, testing both their friendship and their understanding of matters of the heart. A Metrograph Pictures release. So that's one way to describe this movie. I'm particularly drawn to the idea of it being a Shakespearean rondelet, which we can discuss. Yeah. And I didn't know, know what a rondelet was until I looked it up. It's essentially just a round, a short, simple song that you would repeat, like row, row, row your mm. boat gently down the stream. Um, but there's another description of this taken from the website of Francois-Éric Gendron, who plays Alexander in this film. Alexander being the handsome engineer of light and power. Uh, on his website, the way he describes girlfriends and boyfriends is Blanche falls for Fabian's friend Alexander, who fails to pay her any attention, seemingly more interested in Leia. During Leia's absence, Fabian and Blanche enjoy each other's company. The film follows the shifting sands of these relationships. That's a that's a really solid plot summary. It, it is just kind of gets it, to the heart of what the story is. What, what the story is. What it's missing that's crucial, maybe in my, from my point of view, is the ending of the movie, which is obviously very crucial mm -hmm. and, and sort of defines the entire film. Sean, you want to tell us a little bit about when this movie came out? Yeah. How it, how it, how it, where it fits in the larger comedies and proverbs um, sort of picture? Yeah, so this film was released in 1987. Um, this was the sixth and final film of the comedies and proverbs series. Um, this is a series that he thought could continue and if he ever felt like making more comedies and proverbs is something that he would just be able to jump back into but this is ended up being the final one for the series um funnily enough this was the first one that he had the idea for so this is the one that he had the huh. vague idea for that kind of gave him the the idea of the entire series and the premise for these series um this was released in 1987 um and uh it was nominated at the cesars which is the kind of equivalent of the French, French Oscars. The French Oscars. Um, it was nominated for Best Writing, uh, which lost to Louis Malet's Au Revoir Les Enfants, which came out that same year. And uh, Sophie Renoir was nominated for Best uh, for Most Promising Actress, which is an interesting kind of category in, uh, in French cinema. Um, and they lost to Matilda May uh, for Cry of the Owl, which was directed by fellow New Waver Claude Chabrol. Great. Um, this was the sixth and final film of the comedies and proverbs, uh, even though it was, as Sean said, the first idea. Um, and in this case, Romare wanted the series to end in a more optimistic way than some of the other films had, you know, the ending of this film, though I would debate the optimism of it in some ways. I, I sort of Ooh. question a little bit of that. Okay. I mean, it's optimistic yeah. for sure. It the, the thing that's interesting is apparently, and, and I'd be curious to know where your research on this came from, some of the uh, inspiration for this film came from The Great Twelfth Night by William Shakespeare. Where did you where did you read that fact? So I read about that in um, the interviews series. So there's the Eric Romare interviews. Ah, the book that, yeah, book. which we'll link to in the notes. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
But he didn't really go into Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. But the one thing he said about it is it was the confusion of uh, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and the quid pro quo quality of it. So you're familiar with Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. What do we need to know about this Twelfth Night reference, this Shakespearean quality in reference to the movie that we're going to be talking about? What should we know if we know, like, I know nothing about Shakespeare. What do I need to know about Twelfth Night? Yeah, well, I think it's it's something actually that we, when we discuss sort of the themes of the movie, it might be worth getting Mm -hmm. into a little bit, Um, the confusion and, um, you know, questions of, of, of what is love. And I think really what it comes down to with the Shakespeare stuff is it's a bit of a vibe. Like, it's Mm -hmm. the idea of... Uh, there's a tension. How do we resolve that tension? What is the, you know, what does it actually mean when people end up together? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it, and it leaves you with more questions than it provides answers. As does life, as does love, as does all human relationships, which is really rad. That was, that was beautiful, Sean. Let's jump back into the production <laughs> of this movie. So, uh, film is shot on 35, which is different from the grainier more verite look of Aviator's Wife wife and Four Adventures, which was shot on 16 millimeter. Now, Um, what's pretty interesting about that, Liam, is that even though this looks like, when you see this movie, if you had seen Aviator's Wife prior to this, like Aviator's Wife has that look of like, it's a 16 millimeter production. It looks more like an indie film. Um, This movie is pristine. It is absolutely gorgeous in its aesthetic. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, The colors are unbelievable. The colors are unbelievable. you would assume it's a much bigger production, but he used the same or very similar production methods to what he did on the 16 millimeter production. So again, working with a very small crew, this crew was about five to seven people, utilizing natural light, filming on location um, with real people in the background. So um, a lot of what he's learned throughout the 80s has been applied to this in a way that like you never would guess watching this movie that it's, uh, you know, had been shot in what, some might consider a more amateur, quote-unquote, way. It's interesting you say that because Anne-Laurie Moray, who plays Adrian, mm-hmm. who is also an aviator's wife, was like, you know, we had the what you would think of as the bare minimum of a crew for shooting this movie, but it was too many people for Romare. He was driven a little crazy by the number of people yeah. who, were, who was on set, which I just think is wild. And this, is, this was um, seven like about five to seven seven people um the film is 100 minutes long we're starting to see a pattern here a lot of his films seem to be 100 minutes long um and yeah it it feels it feels of, of a piece with the other two films that we've talked about which makes sense because when you look at the crew the people that worked on this movie you see a lot of commonality commonalities so i'll i'll give you a couple of these and then sean you can take over yeah um it was written directed by eric romare it's his 13th film it was produced by margaret menegos who produced green ray tale of summer pauline at the beach aviator's wife and the onset produ- production was done by francois Etergeret, who seems pretty pivotal to the pity who seems pretty pivotal to the production of this movie. Yeah, you mentioned him in the last episode as well for Four Adventures of Renette and uh, Mirabelle. He helped with the the shoot in the countryside, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like his his job of being an assistant on uh, onset production is, would be the equivalent to what we have as like a unit production manager or perhaps the line producer. Like they're on the ground. They're making being, it happen. Making it happen. Yeah. The director's doing the film, yeah. as we've talked about before, and they're making the film happen. Um, it was edited by Maria Luisa Garcia, who also edited Green Ray, Four Adventures, Tale of Springtime. This is really interesting. 
According to my Eric Romare biography, the cinematography was by Bernard Lutique, but the but the uh, framing was by Sophie Mantegeau. He tried to break those into two different jobs and found it like extremely frustrating. And also, I think from a filmmaking perspective, bizarre that you would say, okay, you're going to handle the cinematography, but you're going to handle the framing. I find those two inextricable from each other. Yeah. But it, it's mentioned in the, um, in the text. I will say that there is a... I, I'm obsessed with the images in this movie. I think they're wonderful. And they're so precise in a way that they are less precise than in, let's say, Aviator's Wife and Four yeah. Adventures. I think there's a... Uh, sorry to blow up the spot here, but I think there's a, what's the word? Sort of a, a growth, right? Mm-hmm. From the first, from that film to this film, where it's a, the images in Aviator's Wife are a little more tossed off, mm-hmm. a little more caught. And, t- and here, we're like, we are, every moment is framed. You know, yeah. characters walk into pre-established frames. Yeah. There's very little panning. And when it pans, there's almost a Wes Andersonian quality to the pan, where we pan into a composed frame. Yeah. Or a character walks in. Camera movement is very limited in this movie. Framing seems essential. Oh, absolutely. And um, I mean, that's so interesting. I feel like in this movie, I really feel his uh, his debt to silent cinema. And I that's what I kind of mm. feel in his framings. It's just like very direct, very simple, but like this is the frame and this is what we're going to see. And he only... Uh, we'll film like kind of what we need to see. Um, that's really kind of bizarre, actually, about the the splitting of the jobs in a way that it's not bizarre in America and maybe on larger productions. You know, on and on, on larger productions, you have your camera operator and you have your cinematographer. Um, but the way Romare had been working had been with Sophie Mantegno on these um, this uh, what he calls the amateur films, um, where she is in charge of the Zoom. She's in charge of all the framing. He even says himself, like, I'm not really great at framing. Um, so he entrusts his cinematographers. So it's, it's a re- wild thing for an incredible yeah. capturer of images. Yeah. To say, I'm not good at framing. <laughs> cool, that I'm fucked <laughs> right. at framing. Dude, I, I, so, like, I feel like what you described as an art hangover when I watch these movies of like equally inspired, but also like sometimes a little intimidated and depressed. Like, can one make a movie better than Romare? And like, it's a, it's kind of an intimidating thought. Yeah, I think that that's not the fear you should have. But I understand that's not being critical, by the way. It's no, like, but yeah. it is like that's what should should inspire for I, sure. I, to come back to your point, I totally understand. You know, I've never been on a really been on a camera crew. You know, I've mm-hmm. only ever worked with. But I totally see the difference between an operator and a cinematographer. An operator executing on the cinematographers. Mm-hmm. But this idea, and look, we're talking about a linguistic difference. We're talking about a cultural yeah. difference. It's 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 hard to comp. And we're talking a little bit from the perspective of folks that have studied industrialized filmmaking, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But the idea of delineating between a cinematographer or someone doing the cinematography and doing the framing, they're so linked to me that like it still seems very, very bizarre. And especially like bizarre, especially to, with to his philosophy like of just wanting to streamline production as as much as possible. And it makes me wonder like how much of that was thought out beforehand or how much of that developed on set in the making of this movie where he decided, you know what, I want Sophie to be handling the framing and um, Bernard, I want you to focus on the lighting and um, you know, the direction in which we're shooting. It is fascinating. Yeah. 
Uh, let's 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 launch through the rest of these credits because yeah. I, I, I want to I want to get into. We haven't actually talked about what we think about the film, though. I know how you feel, but I have not told you how I, I know. Feel I'm about I'm the movie. so excited, so excited. The sound was by George Pratt, who did Aviator's Wife and was really interested in natural sound. He was assisted by Cas- Pascal. Excuse me. He was assisted by Pascal Ribier, and the sound mix was by Dominique Hennequin. There's a moment in this film. There's a lot of shots of people walking away in this movie, which I think is really fascinating when he chooses to show face and when he doesn't. There's a big reveal in this film where we do not see the person being spoken to that I think is so effective. But there's a moment where Fabian and Blanche are walking away from the camera, and as they walk away, the sound fades too, naturally, Mm -hmm. where they're moving away from the microphone. And I just think that doing that in a non-mix way, in a... On set, meaning I think what we're hearing is the production sound yeah. as they walk away is amazing. That's It's yeah. amazing because it feels like a documentary. It feels, like for lack of a better word, it feels as though it's actually happening yeah. as opposed to I'm mixing the sound in a post-production studio in like Paris yeah. six to eight months after we shot this. Instead, it's, no, they walked away, so the sound's going to do what the sound would yeah. do. There's also a moment where there's a big gust of wind and they don't clean it up. Yep. The wind is just on the soundtrack. All these imperfections, um, he'd mentioned this uh, talking about one of the previous movies in the in the interview book that I'm reading, um, adds to the quality of reality. So all of those things like location sound and like really being very direct with the sound and having these characters walk away is so in line with like a philosophical approach to how he shoots things. Right. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So it's a bummer he never wrote a book the way that like a Robert Bresson wrote, you know, notes on cinema, cinematograph that where we could really hear about his thoughts on, yeah. on filming. Well, you yeah. know, but he's given plenty of interviews. I think so it's, it's, um, so. it'll be our duty to, in some Should way, we write the book? To, in some way, compile our notes into what is like, what is the working methods? And this could be a future episode as well. Something that's just focused on like how to make a movie like Romare. Totally. Yeah. The music in this film is by Jean-Louis Valero. Um, instru- he was instructed to write music we don't notice. Uh, the film was distributed by Les Films de, de, Les Films de, de Lusange and the Compagnie d'Eric Romer. Uh, Les Films de Lusange, am I saying that? Am I anywhere near how that's supposed to be said? I feel like I'm not. Les Films de Lusange. Was founded in, nine, thank you, Sean, was founded I, in 1962. I took four years of high school French, but I know, you're far but more I, I know for me. nothing. It was the one class I cheated in pretty much all of high school. Wow, this really is turning into a different podcast. (laughs) Do you want to talk about it? Uh, The the company was founded in 1962 by Eric Romare and Barbette Schroeder, another super important person in French cinema history, still important. And then it would later be run by his producer, Margaret Menegos, whose name, who is credited as a, as a, in the opening producerial titles on this. It's film. actually the first title um, that we see is uh, that of the uh, production company and the producer, which is, um, which is really important because without the producer, like the movie's not happening. Totally. I'm going to just throw a note in here. Let's streamline through the cast yes. a little bit. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. let's, I think we should see, I think the letterbox reviews are cool, but maybe save them for a little bit later as like a closing segment. Cool. 
Not because I don't like them, but because I but think we should we get into wanna, the movie. We should get into the movie, and we we have a lot. Of, we're going to be trimming live as we go. Yeah. I think that that what we've done here is great so far. Cool, but I think we want to keep yeah. rolling through. Fuck Let yeah. me just set another marker so I can. Okay, great. The cast, Sean. Do you want to give us a little rundown of the cast of the movie? Just some names. Yep. I'm just going to keep it very brief. Um, we have Emmanuel Chalet, who plays Blanche. Um, she works in City Hall in the Cultural Affairs Department. She is our main character. This is her first major role. Uh, then we have Sophie Renoir as Leah. She's a student at a computer school. Our main character, Blanche, meets her during lunch, and they become fast friends. Um, she is the great-granddaughter of the painter Pierre-Auguste Renoir, and she is the daughter of cinematographer Pierre, Pierre Renoir and the grandniece of director Jean Renoir. So she is coming from a pretty uh, prestigious so history. To describe this as anything besides French art royalty. I mean, this French is like, art royalty. Um, that's that's it's unbelievable. That's what Sophie Renoir is. Yeah. Then we have um, uh, Francois Eric uh, Gendron or Gendron as Alexandra. Um, he's a businessman or engineer friend um, of Sophie's that Blanche develops a crush on. And then we have Eric Villard as Fabien, Fabienne, Sophie's boyfriend who is a scientist. Uh, Two very quick things yeah. about that. One, Fabian is the name of a character, a, a somewhat inconsequential character in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Oh, but uh, I would not describe Na a ton of commonalities between them. But the inspiration for thing, the name, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. The second thing was was, was Eric Romare like this time? I'm only making movies with Eric's. Only <laughs> Eric's are involved in my filmmaking. It's only me, Eric's, and one Francois. Two Francois actually, but everybody else. That Eric. would be an amazing. That's experiment to just try to make a movie with someone that shares the same name and every crew member needs to have the same Everyone name has to be named Eric. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, returning from her work in The Aviator's Wife, Sean, is... Anne-Laure Murray as Adrienne, um, an artist who is dating Alexandra earlier in the film. Okay, Sean. Let's talk a little bit about how we watch this film. Tell me a little bit about when and where and how and, and, and anything you feel is important to your cinematic experience of watching Girls and Girlfriends and Boyfriends. Uh, well, I got oh, wait, it's Boyfriends and Girlfriends. Boyfriends, Sorry, boyfriends and that. Girlfriends. I got to see it in the theaters uh, at Metrograph. This is the final film in the Summer of Romare series. Um, it was a pretty crowded screening, uh, which is just, you know, very... Uh, very encouraging to know that this many folks are coming out to see all of these Romare films. What about you, Liam? How did you watch this movie in I, Los Angeles? It was my first time seeing the movie. I finished it 10 minutes, about 10 minutes before we started recording. So it's like <laughs> incredibly fresh. Um, Sean did most of the work for prepping this episode, I will say. Um, yeah, by myself, in my house, on my couch, in the sunlight. I hate watching movies during the day in my house. Mm -hmm. um, I like a dark room. I like a cinema. And if it's not in a cinema, I like it at night. So this was a less than ideal way to experience this film, theoretically. But today is the last, sort of in some ways feels like the last day of summer. It's August 31st, Ooh. the day that we're recording yep. this. <laughs> You're clearly a teacher because <laughs> yeah. you just went, <laughs> Sean just threw up next, in his mouth a little Tuesday, bit. Next Tuesday, I'm back at work. Good luck, buddy. Yeah. It's going to go great. You're going to be happy once oh, yeah. it starts. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited um, for it. This movie rules. This movie kicks ass. I love this movie. I am um, like 
very attracted to everyone and everything about mm-hmm. this movie. Even the people that drive me fucking bonkers <laughs> in this movie, I'm still like... Yeah, I thought I loved it. I thought I, it was I'm great. So, um, I, I have no I idea great. which characters those are that drive you bonkers. So that's going to be a uh, fun to I, sort I of want see you to over see, the course. I want of this. you yeah. to guess. Yeah. I want you. To, I will give you a hint. It's 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 two of the four leads of this movie. Two I of the four like, leads. Um, yeah. I'm gonna guess it is um, Fabian and Leah. It is Leah and Alexander. Okay. Yeah. When they end up and together, under- I'm like, of course they fucking end up together. <laughs> that bro and this like woman who can't stop talking about herself all the time. Um uh yeah, they drove me nuts. Fabian at the beginning, I was like, this guy is a, a flop. It He's, sounds but by the, It sounds like you're judging the, the characters, Liam. It yeah, sounds well, that sounds like a judgment. Yeah, it is a little bit. Um <laughs> but I am a deeply, 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 deeply in love with Blanche. The whole time I was like, I could fix her. I could fix her. You love this movie. I love this movie. I uh, this is my second time seeing it. Um, when I had bought the Blu-ray, oh, second time. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I um I did not rewatch it at home before this podcast episode, but uh, I watched it in the theaters. Prior to that, I had watched it a few months ago. Um, and then when I watched it a few months ago is when I bought the Blu-ray set from the UK. Um, this was the first one I watched from the series. And uh, it blew me away and, like, had become, like, one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite Romare movies, which is going to be, like, a, th- a thing with this podcast. Where, like, every, it's going to change every, every single every movie. Every movie yeah. I watch, that's I'm chill. like, oh, my God. Well, like, clearly yeah, Boyfriends no, and I Girlfriends think that that's, is the fave. <laughs> I think that that is a really, a really strong uh, uh, instinct. Um, yeah, it's great. It's lovely. Let's talk a little bit more about it. Um, so I think let's start by talking about the location that this movie takes place. So, and I, I, this is what I took watching it, is that it is in one of these, like, quote-unquote, new developments, or like a, like a, like a, like a new suburb mm-hmm. outside of Paris that you now see in a lot of European places, where it's like, no one, people are no longer living in the center of Paris, they're mm-hmm. living in these new developments with stores, and like, your home is kind of above your, like, you live in the same building, or close to the building where you work, that's where the mm-hmm. new municipal building might be, but you walk like down the street, and there are shops, and there are gyms, it's like, kind of like a, uh, an, a utopic, a utopian kind of like, late 20th century, right. Um, suburb. Yeah, is and as as they were called over there, they were called new towns. Um, ah. so um, this was a new town in a town called Serge, uh, which is twenty eight kilometers from the center of Paris. Um, it is really interesting this whole idea, and like you know, you start to see the rise of this. I guess everywhere in the world, you know, this is happening in France. This is happening in America, and has been happening in America since the fifties, but really ramping up. And it, it also um, is point. happening in cities now. Like, if you spend time mm-hmm, in cities, right. you're starting to see mini versions of these, like, apartment buildings with gyms and food courts. And, like, why would you ever leave? Yeah. Especially uh, in the, like, say, I mean, this started well before, but in the post-pandemic age, when people are working from home. Yeah. There is this feeling of, I never have to leave my, like, three-block radius. Right. Because I have everything you, I need. Yeah, everything, the whole idea of all these sort of um, towns that get created is like, how can you have all the amenities that you need in your life readily accessible? You know, you have a public space, you got a supermarket, you got a bar, you got your gym, you have your social places. Um, and as long as you have friends and family over there, essentially, you never really need to leave the town to really do much. 
it feels like two things. One, it feels as though this movie is kind of like hinting at the changing, you know, from a from at this point a director who's in his 60s mm-hmm. hinting at a changing not only Parisian but French society, a more sort of like urbanized, more modern kind of France where where you feel as though you know, we're not, like, in tiny coffee shops in Paris. Right. We're in, like, you know, new, sprawling kind of centers. And it feels like the kind of place where, and the movie illustrates this, you can bump into someone you know three times in a single day. Which I think contributes to this idea of the film as what you've called, like, a bit of a Romarian screwball comedy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um well, with the uh, with the screwball comedy part of it, um, well, before before we get to that, I just want to talk a little bit more about like the suburbs and the location because I think it's kind of interesting, right? Like, he, yeah, he and com- I think how it can relate to this the sub- screwball kind right. of comedy, yeah, and the people on like, top of each other and always near each other, right? Right. You're 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 seeing a uh, locations that get repeated. So again, there's like this kind of sitcom like we see the sort of squares, we see the 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 lake area, we see the apartment that she lives in. Um it also like I wonder how much of this is like Romare giving a commentary. Like is there okay, is there a commentary in this choice or is it merely like a kind of depiction of well, this is just a focus on a different kind of person, a people that live outside of Paris, but there's no judgment over here. Like, is he making commentary that you feel or you see in this choice of location, or is it merely just the choice of location for the story? I think it's, wow, it's putting me on the spot here. I think it's two things. I think there, there is not, look, I, I think there, there's, there's a larger thing, which is, I think that there is a reputation that Romare has as kind of this like old French classist Mm -hmm. kind of like french culture is everything uh i like people living in central paris uh, talking about how they feel um and i think in some ways that reputation is earned and certainly there's a lot to talk about in relation to romare and his feelings on french identity and and who is french and who is not and that's probably best saved for another conversation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. however if there's something that these films have shown me, especially for Adventures of, Mira, of Renette and Mirabelle, and this film, is that Romare is deeply interested and I think sympathetic to youth, the, to young people in France. I think mm-hmm. he he wants to understand their rhythms, he wants to understand the way they think, he wants to understand the way that they love, and I think he sees parallels between perhaps like the sort of more Parisian living of the 60s mm-hmm. and what evolves into this more suburbanized living in the later era. And and I, I, I cl- would claim no expertise on either of those subjects, mm-hmm. but what I would claim in having seen more some of his earlier films in this film is that he's trying to adapt to the circumstances and to the way that people are living in the moment yeah, that they're living. Yeah, right. It's a, it's a real document of like, how do people, how are young people living now? And in a new context, uh, I think that's a really great way of um, of putting it, you know. And he's quite sympathetic to it, and it also speaks to like the characters will continue to see in his movies. They're going to be of like a certain age, and I think that age of people might be interesting to him because we're it's an age of people where they're still figuring stuff out in their lives. They haven't solidified into certain like ideals or certain ways of living. There's still things open to them. They're still open to the possibility of change and their life going in a different direction. One of the things that I find most 
interesting about his movies is how they're about identity and flux. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't feel as though you're seeing a stable person. I mean, a state, and what I mean by stable is I don't, you don't, you're not seeing someone who, you know, the traditional way of of writing a screenplay is like polar arcs. Like yeah. where does or uh, how does where does someone start a film and where do they end a film? Yeah. Right? Is it is a polar or polar polar attitudes? I guess mm-hmm. would be the way to think about it. And the polar the trip from this attitude to this attitude is defined as the arc, right? right? And Romare seems to be more interested in in what I think is real identity, which is constantly, maybe this is becoming my therapy session, constantly bouncing between different aspects of self and personality, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to understand yourself. And two steps forward, one step forward, three steps back, yeah. or whatever the case might be. There is, I think in this film, a moment of critique. Now, let's, let's. I don't know if we want to call it defeat. I don't know if we want to call it critique, but it's one of my favorite moments in the film. And it is when Blanche and Fabian are in the woods and she starts to cry and he says why are you crying and she says oh i don't know it might be the silence Mm -hmm. and i i think there's a lot more going on than just her crying because of the silence i think she's thinking about her life i think she's thinking about her relationships i think blanche is one of the really a really great female character and that she's given the space to exist in that way she's doing a lot of like emotional heavy lifting in terms of performance throughout the film as well and understanding who she is yeah and i think that this movie manages to manifest a sense of inner self in a way that like you know despite a filmmaker there's a wow a lot of different things to talk about here but but he really knew how to show surfaces but he used those superficial things that we watch people's behavior to get at something deeper the critique that I think exists in this film is that in this new age, in this, what is becoming this like hyper-technical, hyper-local uh, way of living in terms of like, I'm Parisian, but I live on the outskirts and I have an old Navy down the street from it. There's a moment where you see an old Navy sign right. and I'm like, yeah. wow, mo- like, uh, you know, globalized, global living is becoming a thing in the late 80s, right? right? Yeah. You have to wonder if he's like, and he's an environmentalist, cares deeply about the environment, he cares deeply about the landscape. If some part of him is like, the silence that we all need to live to exist with does not exist in these new spaces. And if that, sure, if that ain't a contemporary idea mm-hmm. and how we live now, I don't know if there is one. So I wonder yeah. if that's a bit of critique. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think potentially. Um, I think in merely sort of the way he frames it, he allows us to answer these questions or have these ideas pop into our heads. I don't know how much of like, he's trying to say, like, here it is, like, I'm showing you this Old Navy sign, like, or you see this Old Navy sign framed over here so you can have these connections. But we're seeing Blanche walk away in this shot. And we also see an Old Navy sign. And now you can put two and two together. Two to two together. And how you want to how you want to how you want to see it. Um you actually brought up a great thing talking about sort of Blanche in that moment over there and Blanche is our main character for this film. Um this movie starts off um with a really incredible introduction that sets up the web of relationships. Um and what these characters do. Oh yeah, do, the title cards. I forgot about those. These, almost like a sitcom. It's it's almost like a sitcom. It also reminds me, you know, we talked about the screwball comedy and um you know, like when you watch like the old trailers for like a Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, like you know, Holiday or Philadelphia Story and you get the the actor title cards. It's like starring Cary Grant and you see Cary Grant in a moment in the movie or in a moment from his life. You know, Catherine Hepburn, you see a moment from that starring in 
holiday, right? George Cukor is holiday or whatever. Did I get that right? I might have fucked it up. I don't know if it's no Cukor, but yeah, 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 right. Um, so like there is this kind of like screwball comedy, sitcomy quality to it. So we're introduced to to Blanche, um, and she's at her job, and we'll actually meet all these other characters at their job. So we just see the character doing a mundane task at their job, and that's really all we'll ever find out about what it is they do. But it helps set up these characters, at least just some of the kind of like demographic info that we need to know. Um, But what I want to ask you and what I want to start to talk about is like, what do we know or understand about Blanche? You know, she's our she's our in into this film over here. She's ostensibly the the main character. Um, What is who is Blanche? And what is um, what is she going through? What is um, what is her sort of like circumstance? Well, I think it's. I think that the thing that I think of when I when I hear that, and I find very relatable, and I, I wonder if you do too, is that she works for the cultural affairs uh, department, and kind of like, like a, a bureaucratic, bureaucratic job, right? She's a bureaucrat, yeah. but she works sort of like in the equivalent of what I feel would be like are uh, people that work on arts councils in mm-hmm. cities in the U.S. Yeah. and like manage um, manage arts programs or manage cultural programs or like you know. And maybe have backgrounds that they went to paint paint school, they went to art school or wherever, and they've kind of transitioned into this like, well, you know, probably stable kind of existence. Mm-hmm. And I think that which she's not begrudging she, of, you know, no, she, she's not begrudging she of likes it at her all. Job, she, very European. Yeah, she doesn't want to be an artist. Of, you know, I think at one yeah. point she talks a little bit of like, oh no, like I like, you know, like. I enjoy what it is that I'm doing. Um, so it's not this sort of like I'm stuck in like this Antonioni malaise of modernity and bureaucracy. But this is her her position. No, but there is clearly a well of emotion that she is underwriting that her is that repressed. I don't know that she's yeah. like quite dealt with. And 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 the fact that she's positioned as a culture worker, maybe simplistically makes you think like maybe she is a uh geez, man, that water bottle. <laughs> All over the pops and deal, deal, deal. Um, maybe this episode brought to you by water bottles. Um, I think she's a little frustrated in her life, she's a little frustrated in her love. I don't mm-hmm. think her career, her issues are career related, Correct. I think they're love related. Yeah. But I, I do find it interesting to when a character is posited as a cultural worker and what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone is sort of has these jobs, but in somewhat in a great way, their jobs are not the center of their lives. They go to their yeah. jobs, they take their lunch break, and then they go home, and, and they have the space and time in their life to think about right. love. We understand that they have jobs that exist, but their jobs are not their lives, and their lives are revolving around the the desires that they have in terms of their romantic relationships and friendships. You know, friendship is a huge part of this movie as well. Um, after this introduction, she meets Sophie. Um, Sophie Renoir, who's playing the character of Leah. Um, Blanche is sitting at a cafeteria. Leah comes in, takes a seat with her, and then they bec- they they begin this friendship because um, Blanche does not want to eat alone. She would prefer to eat with someone, and so would Leah. And so just this immediate like uh, desire to share this time, share lunch, and share a meal with someone leads to this friendship. Um, over the course of this friendship, we learn a couple of things. Uh, Blanche is single. Um, she does not have anyone in her life. She hasn't life. had a boyfriend in two she years. She hasn't had a boyfriend in two years. Um, she might have 
some low self-esteem. We find out over the course of this film, like she doesn't quite see herself as attractive or um, maybe feels like she's like a little plain. Like she'll often like question, like Blanche. question, Blanche, like girl, question not her true, looks. Um, and Blanche, I love you. <laughs> and it's, re- you, it's really great casting too, because Sophie Amazing. is like, um, Sophie Renoir, Leah is a little bit kind of bewitching, uh, which is a word you just de- de- uh, used to describe uh, Jessica Ford last week. Um, and I think also applies to... Um, Sophie Renoir. So they have very different vibes. Sophie uh, Renoir, Leah is much more sure of herself, very confident. Uh, Blanche is not very confident. And um, they meet a friend um, over um, teaching Leah how to swim because her boyfriend, Leah's boyfriend, is into doing things at the lake. Um, At the pool, they meet Alexandra. Alexandra is a friend of Leah's that Blanche then develops a crush on. Kind of like a real kind of go-getter, confident, maybe alpha male sorted person. Nice guy. He's a bro. He's a bro, but a little bit of a but, bro. But like nice a nice bro, guy. But a bit yeah. of... And then we meet Fabienne. Fabienne is Leah's boyfriend. Uh, he is a little bit more serious, a little bit kind of more like down to earth, not like this kind of like uh, very a little like bit of confident. a stick in the mud when we first meet him. A little bit of, of a stick like, in the mud. It's just yeah, a little emo. Calm down. Yeah, man. when, when they first meet, they're like. Uh, uh, Leah's late for something and so he's like we get to see him in this moment of like a little frustration of like well what are we going to do are you coming with me or are you not coming with me um, you know they're in the middle of like trying to have a plan and uh, that's how we first meet them um, so now we've created this kind of like web of relationships of who is dating who who likes who who knows the other person um, and it's over the course of this movie, we start to see all these wires begin to get crossed as people try to figure out their desires and chase their desires. Yeah, we basically have two pairings, and throughout the course of the film, they switch. In the beginning, Blanche is in love with Alexander. She eventually falls in love with and, and ends up with Fabian. At the beginning of the film, Leah is with Fabian. They break up a few times throughout the course of the film, and in the end, Leah ends up with Alexander. So it's a little bit of a switch. And there is a moment at the end of the film where Leia and Blanche are talking about, one is talking about Alexander and the other is talking about Fabian. And they are confused. It's a bit of a moment where they think they're talking about the same person and they're not. And there's a real moment of tension between them. And then they realize Blanche is like, oh, I'm talking about Fabian. And Leah is like, oh, I'm talking about Alexander. And then they kind of laugh and they have this Sort of like, oh, okay, everything's fine. And then they kiss and it's better. And then for about three seconds, they're really angry at each other. They are not happy with each other. Leah's like, wait, you slept with Fabian while I was... (laughs) And this is, and we talked about this briefly before, an incredibly Shakespearean moment. And it's very, very clear that this movie, from the interviews that you've heard, is inspired by Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. So very, very briefly... Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is maybe one of the great masterpieces of mistaken identity and love and people switching off who they're in love with. Uh, It's about two siblings who are often mistaken for one another after they shipwreck on an island. The first line in the play is, if music be the food of love, play on. It's obsessed with love. Mm -hmm. It's about mistaken identity. I gotta check this out. I'm so, like, unversed... There's a great Twelfth Night film directed by Trevor Nunn, who's one of the preeminent 20th century Shakespearean directors. You know, it's, it's just very, very clear 
that there's this Shakespearean influence on it. The biggest to me is actually that this, most Shakespeare comedies end with a, a wedding and the resolution of certain tensions, but not all tensions. And I think the ending of this film parallels that in, in that I do not know that Blanche and Leah are going to be as close as they were before, but they've kind of accepted like, well, we got what we want. We're with the person that we love. And this sort of mistaken identity and this sort of like, melancholic humor that I think defines this movie definitely feels a little bit like it's a Romarian screwball comedy, you know? So it's there's a web of yeah. relationships that you've already pointed out. There's miscommunications. There's misunderstanding. All's, all ends well, which literally a Shakespeare play calls all's well that ends well, mm -hmm. which, spoiler note, it doesn't. And uh, <laughs> I think that it's really important that you say in the notes here hard truths about love and how one lives their lives are learned. So we as an audience are kind of like reflecting, and I think this is key to a Shakespearean yeah. comedy, they're really entertaining, they're really fun, but they kind of like leave us reflecting on our own experience. Yeah, and also like uh, the way we live our life. You know, these characters over the course of this movie there and uh, through these web of relationships are figuring out like, you know, uh, what is the value of loyalty? You know, what are the limits of loyalty? Um, um, how does one um, deal with their desires and what they give into and what they keep at bay? Um, and how do you make decisions? How do you make, how do you decisions? make the ultimate choice that you want yeah. to make about your about your life? There's a, there's so many interesting things with like Blanche, where like uh, she has this crush on Alexander, but as we're watching the movie, there's nothing. There's we see as an audience, there is nothing between them. There's never any kind of chemistry. There's never any anything. But she's decided... She can't talk to him. She, she can't talk to, talk to him. him. She doesn't know how to talk to him. But he's handsome and she's sort of decided like, oh, well, like one must have a crush on someone. And I, I remember going yes. through this in like grade school. It's like, oh, well, like, who do I have a crush on? Oh, I have a crush on so-and-so. Why? I don't know. You know, like, you don't really know I have why. Because I have to. I have to have a crush. Because it's identity. Right? Our identities are in flux, and mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out who we're attracted to. And I think that this gets to something that I think is really key in this movie, is that I think, and we've talked about this a little bit, you have to be a little bit older to really appreciate these movies. Because I think if you're too in that zone of life, you can kind of be like, ugh, I get it. You know, like a little, you're, you're, you're like sort of life- too closely feels as though it's part of this. But when you're older and you're in an established relationship and you might be like, you're not looking, you're not amorous mm -hmm. in the way that you may have been before, you're kind of like, oh, yeah. Like, oh, the the beauty and folly of youth mm -hmm. simultaneously. And, and the fact that she sort of says, I was in love with an image and not a real person. Right. So Alexander is the image of love, the one that we've been fed, mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing to think about in the context of a globalized world. Yeah. And the person that she's actually in love with is a Fabian, right? And I think that the movie plays with those pairings in really, really interesting ways, especially the costuming and the color in the costuming. And so I'll, I want to toss this to you, but I want to say one thing, which is at the end, when the unions are established, when Blanche, Blanche is with Fabian, and Fabian is wearing blue and Blanche is wearing green, and... The other pairing is Leah and Alexander. Alexander's wearing green and Leah is wearing blue. And there's this very, very smart choice throughout to kind of pair 
colors to pair complementary colors and we see this over the course of the movie there's like very intentional choices that are being made in terms of like color blocking and what characters are wearing um and it's a way of sort of just like you know in a naturalistic film having these kind of uh visual signifiers of uh and creating like visual storytelling through these uh costume choices but it also is like really telling us about helping indicate what you're what you're describing over here which is who is with who and we kind of get to see that in a very visual way through these uh color juxtapositions yeah and it's it's all very deliberate and it's very smart and we should say that there's no one in the film credited as costume designer or costumer which so we have to uh, yeah. assume that this is bromare and the actors potentially collaborate we don't know we don't know who did the costumes but it it's very deliberate and very thought through and it feels like some of the other production decisions were made quickly because they because he's not spending a lot of money, but very much with the costumes. He was like, no, in this scene, you have to wear yellow and Blanche is going to wear red mm-hmm. or whatever the case might be. And by the way, the fits in this movie are fucking incredible. It's so awesome. And it's another another version of modernity and how, like, uh, we talked about this with Renette and Mirabelle, like, it's good to show like what is really modern at the time, even if certain outfits and stuff like might look quote unquote dated, they give us a sense of like what was contemporary. They don't feel dated now either. Also now, yeah, there's this one really great dress that Blanche wears towards the end when she's meeting up with, uh, Leah at a cafe. And, uh, that's like, you know, it's like her dress up outfit. It's the outfit that she's yeah. wearing. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a really great outfit, but um, it also feels like there's moments where the weather feels to like it ma- the costuming matches the weather. Like later mm-hmm. on in the film, uh, you know, in the in the summer scenes, Fabian is wearing like a blue shirt that sort of feels really you know like warm and and oceany, and it feels like the summer, right? It yeah. feels like we're at a beach. But later on in the film, he's wearing a more button down shirt with a little bit of a of a of a pattern, mm-hmm. and that feels to better reflect. Also interesting, there's a fifth character in this dynamic who is. Um, Anne Marie Loray, who plays, who plays, she I plays Adrian. Adrian, and she's always dressed in contrast to them. She's more patterny. She patterny. She has more layers on. Like he oh. uses. Well, she's uh, she's the artist. You know, in in, in stark right. contrast to all the other characters, she is an art student and right. um, uh, has a very different energy. She says what's on her mind. She doesn't beat around the bush. She's kind of very straightforward. There's a scene where they go to a tennis match. Um, uh, Leah's not there, but Blanche has been invited, and it's basically everybody minus Leah. And Blanche is being a total weirdo. Like, she's not really yeah, talking to anyone. she's super weirdo. Um, she's very stressed. She's very stressed, but no one else is really going out of their way to talk to her either. But she's not inserting herself into any of these situations so at the end she just kind of leaves and adrian's like that's weird she's weird yeah but then she apologizes to her in the next scene it's just such an interesting movie yeah. in terms of like the dynamics oh, of the so many reversals and things like yeah. That. yeah and we can talk about it forever yeah. but we won't do that let's let's talk about the title of this this here film so you alluded to earlier it the title the english title is boyfriends and girlfriends yeah, so the new English title is Boyfriends and Girlfriends. So that's what it's been called um, uh, with this new re-release. That's what it's called in the Blu-ray that I have. Um, previous to that, it had been called My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. 
Um, which sounds like a mumblecore movie. Which sounds like, it sounds a little mumblecore, and it's you know we should definitely do an episode on mumblecore in relation to Romare and what are the connections and what are not the connections. That He's exist. a little mumblecore in a sense, without in, in a but but certainly not a mumblecore filmmaker with at all zero mumbling, with a absolute intention yeah, with, in every yeah, single a, line. With the with and the mum even the mumbling is precise. It's probably yeah. a good way to think yeah, about it. Even the mumbling is precise. So then it's uh, it's also been titled My Boyfriend's Girlfriend. Then you have the French title, which is L'Ami de Mon Ami, which translates to The Friend of My Friend. So what, I, what I'm what i interested in and curious about is like after having seen this movie, what is the title that best communicates what this movie is? You know, what, what does the title say about the movie? Because I think all these titles speak to very different aspects of what this movie is about. Um, so let's let's start with boyfriends and girlfriends. You know, what is it about that title? What is it what is evocative about the title boyfriends and girlfriends? Well, I think rather than talking about each one in in sort of outside, you know, rather than talking about each one individually, I think I'm going to tell you which one I think is the best one. Okay. And then we can I think that might be yeah. a good way to weigh on it. So I think of these titles, the best title is boyfriends and girlfriends. Here's why. And I didn't look at your notes, so I yeah. don't know what you said. Uh, there's no la ami de mon ami, the friend of my friend. Little clunky in English, isn't quite work um, in the way that we think about it. It, it. It's just it's a little clunky. Like my friend's friend doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Uh, my girlfriend's boyfriend again posits it as like a little bit of a mumblecore movie. Like it's only a movie about love and uh, you know connections and pairing off. Which, by the way, it like. I would say 70% of the movie feels like 70 to 80% of For the movie sure. feels like it's about that. Girl, boyfriends and girlfriends, I think, is effective because it's linguistically complicated in the sense that it doesn't just mean my romantic partner. It, you know, because girl men very rarely will men say they have boyfriends. They will have say they have friends who are boys, which is a separate, you know, or like my friends. You know, mm-hmm. very rarely do men say boyfriend, but women will say girlfriend, right, mm-hmm. about their girlfriend. And, and I would say that there's, none of the men in this film are really friends with each other. They're acquaintances, right? right? Yeah. But this title hints at the idea that this movie is not just about romantic connection, but about uh, friendly connection, about friendship, about, about like, you know, a kind of solidarity that I mm-hmm. think is probably closer to like what the film feels as though it is getting at, which I suppose to steal your line is it evokes the idea of pairings of people grouping themselves in certain ways. Yeah. The, um, I feel like boyfriends and girlfriends is the best title as well. I think it's the most evocative because it does suggest all levels of entanglement. It really isn't about any one particular relationship in the movie. The title, my boyfriend's, my girlfriend's boyfriend absolutely works, but that's entirely, mostly from Blanche's perspective. It can also apply to Leah, but it feels like, okay, this is about Blanche being, and her girlfriend is Leah, and her boyfriend is Fabian. It makes it more just about the relationship aspect um, and Blanche's dramatic crisis, but it kind of doesn't really get to like the bigger sort of idea of like how these different pairings and entanglements can sort of can go. Um, yeah, the French title definitely is a little clunky, though in French, if... In French, it's great. In French, it's great and makes me kind of wonder like, oh, there are some titles that stay the French title um, of a film. You know, there are some titles that get translated to English. Um, and when do we sort of like 
choose to translate? When do we choose not to? And there's so many different factors at play with like distribution and everything. But I suppose the reason also that I like this boyfriends and girlfriends, I also see could see this film being called like Blanche because ultimately the most interesting thing about the movie, the, the thing that I think matters the most in the movie is 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 Blanche's quest for self-identity which is mm-hmm. how it fits in thematically by the way i think very closely to me with aviator's wife and four adventures of renette mirabelle and that it's a movie about figuring out who you are and to a large extent eric romare is not necessarily this film actually has resolution around that in a way that i don't think the others do you know yeah. there is a polar attitude which is blanche and i don't know that we know what it is at the beginning but in at, there's a point in the film towards the end where she says i was in love with an image and not a person and i think that's the closest to self-understanding mm-hmm. we get from any of the major protagonists of all three of these comedy and proverbs film from my point of view yeah it's uh this film feels complete and it feels satisfyingly complete um in this final moment we have uh blanche and fabian closer to us in camera they're in the foreground uh we have leah and alexander receding into the background they uh get their attention again and like wave them off so like friendship still exists and you see earlier in the film that leah is not like a very possessive person and so like she's the kind of person that can move on from like whatever had happened. And like, uh, they already seem to be like quite okay with it though. You mentioned there's that three seconds of like, Oh, okay. Like, huh. Now let's like, it becomes, it becomes clearer what it is that sort of happened. The relationship is certainly not quote unquote solved, right? There's, there's, there, there, they might not be what they were before. You know, there's tension left in the Shakespearean way. There's, there's not a full, it's almost like, a symphony ending on a minor note, mm-hmm. but uh, a bright, bright minor note as opposed to a, you know, it's not a D minor. It's like a bit more of an E minor. I don't know. It doesn't feel quite as like resolved as it could, but that's also the nature of a human comedy, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's where this, this term comes from. Um, it, uh, it ends on a, before it goes to the credits, it's not, there's no cut to black. There is no fade out. It's a freeze frame. Um, so we get to see this moment that is frozen in time of these two different pairings together with each other. Fabian and Blanche are embraced in this moment. And then the credits just roll over it with natural sound playing in the background. So it's kind of like this, like this moment that's frozen in time, but through the audio, we have time progressing forward, but they are like now, like, let's remember and let's stay on this sort of idyllic moment of union. Um, no matter and where things and youth, no matter where things may go in the near future. And this is why I think like it's interesting. Romare seems to be uh, not the curmudgeon that of, of like of that he sometimes often is credited as, is accredited as, but is really a figure of curiosity mm-hmm. about where the world is going and about what the what what it means to be French, what it means to be young, what what all these things, you know, they matter to him. And I think that that's been one of the greatest things about watching these later period films first is uh, he never stopped evolving as a filmmaker. Yeah. And I think that that's pretty exciting. Great movie. Yeah. Great, 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 great if, movie. If I had to recommend um, a Romare film for folks to start with, Boyfriends and Girlfriends would be the one. I would love to ask you why, but I think we should save that for like 20 episodes from now okay. when we've gotten through all of the, <laughs> all of his films. How many films did he make after this? Because this is 1987. Now, yeah. granted, he didn't die until 2010, I think. I think he had made at least about like 
12 or so, probably more uh, films afterwards. After this? Uh, his final one being in 2009, I believe. Like right before passing wow. away. Yeah. Yeah, he died uh, at 90 years old. Man, this guy, 89. This yeah. guy, woof. Could, he, he really, he really, he stuck around. Good for him. Um, look, this movie, this movie kicks, this movie kicks butt. This movie rules. It's so, 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 yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah. Amazing movie. And uh, it was, again, just like also seeing it in theaters, everyone was laughing. Everyone was moved. Um, these are uplifting movies that are modern screwball comedies, modern romantic comedies, um, verite, neorealist. Like they feel like you're just seeing life being captured and everyone's problems are given weight and dignity um, in a way that never feels like he's striving for profundity. You know, these are perfect movies and Boyfriends and Girlfriends is, uh, is one of the best. I think we're going to continue to talk about these. I think our plan on the next episode will be to do a a bit of a quick, I'd say a quick recap, a quick sort of reflection on, on what they, what these films are. But I think more importantly, what I think we should wrap, we should do is think a little bit of what makes a movie Romarian might be a good framework for discussing these three films, right? So let's, I think next up, why don't we do an episode where we talk a little bit about what makes a Romarian cinema, yeah. a Romarian film using Aviator's Wife, The Four Adventures of Renette Mirabel, and girlfriends and boyfriends boyfriends, boyfriends and, and girlfriends. girlfriends why do i keep doing that as our as our starting yeah. point because you know they are going to be we watch these films sean saw these films at metrograph their summer of romare series i've been watching them on their app they're going to be around for another month so if you haven't seen them now might be a good time for you to jump to jump in and check these films out if you haven't yet you can find us on social media if you have thoughts questions concerns comments follow me on twitter at Liam G. Billingham, do not follow me on Instagram because um, it's none of your business what goes, on, <laughs> what goes on there. But you can try to follow me. Maybe I'll let you. Sean is the Instagram man. Sean, tell us, tell us where, sh where should we follow you? You can follow me uh, on Instagram at TheBrownSean, S-H-A-U-N. Um, that's also my social media handle on all social media platforms. Uh, and we are also both on Letterboxd. So follow I'm trying us on to update Letterboxd. it more, guys. I try to update I did a review of The Devil's Own last night. Three stars. Um, yeah, get on there, check it out. Uh, if you haven't, if you, so, I don't know how you found this or heard this episode without doing this, but if you search Romericast on your podcast app of choice, you can listen to the show. You can also review the show. You can subscribe to the show if you haven't done that. If you have a family member that likes Eric Romare, but maybe isn't super podcast app savvy or whatever the case is point them to romarecast.com where they'll be able to literally find all of the episodes on whatever platform or just go straight to the website and listen on their web browser right that's, they can find uh, the show that's what i did with my dad on that website i sent my yeah, dad did he the listen? link yeah um, i don't know if he listened to it yet but it was great we had a little conversation i told him i uh started this podcast with you and he was like oh i remember seeing claire's knee in theaters when he came to new york um he couldn't wow. remember a whole lot about the movie but um you know a lot of my love for like this kind of movie came from like my father seeing yeah. stuff like this and so like it's an interesting sort of lineage of like you know um being introduced to art cinema through 
my immigrant father that was just going to these movies in New York during the 1970s. That's so interesting. My dad definitely was not an art cinema guy, but he was a uh, genre cinema guy. Mm -hmm. So I think my love for genre cinema comes from my dad. Uh, This was a blast. We'll be back in a few weeks with a little bit of a sum up, summary, sum up of these films. And I think a larger conversation about Eric Romare's cinema. Thanks for listening to this episode of Romarecast. Adieu. 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 Eh ben, et moi pour toi. Bonne vacances. Bonne vacances. Salut vieux. Salut.